All the episodes you will hear on this podcast are the audio versions of the video content on the Great Light Studios YouTube channel. If you would like to watch the video version of this episode, you can find a link in the show notes. For those of you who may not know, I do rely on monthly financial supporters to continue doing everything I do through this platform. If you are blessed by the resources produced through Great Light Studios and want to help support me in continuing to do all this, then you can find information about how to in the show notes of this episode. And also, would you consider leaving a five-star review on this podcast? Positive reviews go a long way in helping to get this content pushed out to more people. With all that said, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. What I would want to do as a response to that, if I were sitting in a conversation with a Calvinist, I would just say, let's just set aside for a moment, you know, after I've, I've laid out this argument, let's set aside for a moment the debate about how one gets into Christ. Let's set that aside. Is it my faith? Is it God who causes me to have faith? Let's set that aside. We can talk about that in a minute. Can we agree though that the blessings of salvation, the blessings laid out in Ephesians 1, Colossians 2, and so on, that these are exclusively received in the context of union with Christ? Well, I'm going to then kick it this hacky sack over to Jordan and uh, see, Jordan, what you, how, if there's something different, which it sounds like there will be, um, how would you argue, like, what what are some arguments that you would bring to this table in talking to a Calvinism to disprove Calvinism in general? Yeah, I think um, I would, you know, if, if I was sitting down with a Calvinist, I, I typically try to focus it in one of two directions and really the two two angles kind of come together and that is um an emphasis on this concept of what it means to be in christ in him what union with christ is and what all that entails um and so you know ephesians 1 for instance which is obviously a big um a big text for for calvinism uh, but you'll you'll find that this phrase is repeated 10 or 11 times in him, in Christ, in the beloved. And so, you know, one thing I've done over the past couple of years is kind of looked um, into that phrase and, and looked at both Reformed and non-Reformed commentators and theologians to see, like, what do they do with that? How do they understand that? What do they what do they take that to mean? And what I found um, is that there's a pretty... Um, conclusive uh, uh, idea that that most come to about what what Paul is trying to communicate there, and that is that it's this idea of um, to put it simply, it's a connection. To be in Christ is to be connected to Him. It it, it carries with it this idea of intimacy, of relationship, union. You can think of union, uh, uh, a marriage sort of context where the two two parties have become one. They become intimately connected together as, as a branch is intimately connected, organically connected to, um, to the vine. Mm-hmm. And so what I see in the New Testament and what I see, I, th- I think Paul consistently trying to articulate when he, um, you know, references this, this phrase in him, I think is this idea that, you know, and you'll see this in Ephesians 1, 3, where Paul says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has been given to us in Christ. And so it's this idea that the New Testament seems to repeat over and over and over and over again, that the exclusive context in which God has blessed the believer with any spiritual blessing. And, and so some, I'll have to nuance this because Calvinists have pushed back a little bit and said, okay, so you think God doesn't give any grace or any blessings until you're in Christ? Obviously not. God gives, you know, for instance, rain and sunshine to both the, the righteous and the wicked. Um, and his his grace is on all he has made. But I would I would maybe phrase it uh, as like the any blessing that relates to salvation and redemption, salvific blessings, if you will, all that Christ uh, bought, purchased on the cross, all that is contained and exclusively apprehended in the context of union with Christ. So, in other words. 
if you if you are one with Christ, if you're made one with him, then all at once you get everything that God has to give to you. If you're not united to Christ, then you have not you don't have anything. You don't you don't have forgiveness, you don't have redemption, you don't have reconciliation, you don't have forgiveness of sins. All the spiritual blessings that I believe Paul lays out in Ephesians 1, you know, he sets it up in the first 3 in the opening by saying every spiritual blessing has been given to us in Christ in this connection. And then he goes, I think, and he kind of details out what some of those spiritual blessings are. And -hmm. again, that includes forgiveness of sins, redemption, and inheritance. And I would argue the first of those blessings that he goes on to clarify is being chosen. You're chosen to be holy and blameless, being, I think, one of the spiritual blessings that is contained within this context of a connected relationship with Jesus. Not outside Um, of it is what you're saying. Not outside of it. Yeah, not before it, not before it, not outside of it, but inside of it, exclusively inside of it. And so, and, and so that, that would be, you know, election being chosen to be holy and blameless is a gift, a blessing that is exclusively reserved for those who are God's people, those who are in in that sphere of in Christ. And so another one of those that kind of ties into this would be, you know, which um, Lucas, I think you referenced like the essence of Calvinism or something like that. But R.C. Sproul has a quote where he talks about how, you know, the essence of Reformed theology can be summarized in in the statement, regeneration precedes faith. So basically, which says life must come before we have faith in Jesus. And so I think this concept of life is something else that I think would be, should be thought of to be exclusively located and apprehended within this context of connection to Christ. In other words, you don't, God doesn't, first give us some something, you know, something called life. He doesn't make us alive so that then we can subsequently believe and trust in Christ and be joined to him in a, a union, be baptized into Christ, if you will. Rather, it's it's our becoming connected to Christ, our being baptized into him that becomes life for us. Like that Jesus Jesus is the life, right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Um, he, he'll say to, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Paul will say in Colossians uh, 3, when Christ, who is your life, appears, and you also will appear with him in glory. Jesus, I think one of the main emphasis in John 6 is Jesus are explaining that life is something that can only be uh, uh, experienced in as much as you are consuming him. He'll say, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And so what must we do to be made alive? Well, we, we have to eat. We have to partake in the flesh and blood of Jesus. And you think about how God has kind of set this up in, in uh, even the, the tree of life in back in Genesis, where, you know, it was it, it wasn't that God makes us alive so that we're then able to participate in eating from the tree of life and then have eternal life from that. Rather, it's it's the fact that man was separated from the tree of life that that he was thereby separated from eternal life. So life is something that we get by actively partaking in the one who is himself life. And so so I I just I guess my my biggest issue with Calvinism. It comes down to Christology. It's this idea of, of every spiritual blessing being given to us in Christ. Paul and Colossians will say that um, we are complete in him. All the fullness of God is in him. God was pleased that in him, all the fullness of God would dwell bodily. So it's just, you kind of get these, these like overarching statements that are made over and over about the exclusivity of everything being placed, everything God has to give to us has been placed inside his son. And now the way God interacts with us isn't by like dispensing to us a variety of gifts, a variety of blessings. He doesn't say, hey, here's some peace. Here's some righteousness. Here's some forgiveness of sins. Here's some election. Here's some life. Now I'm going to give you that. And then on top of that, you get Jesus too. But rather it's what God has to say is what he said to the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Peter was saying, hey, Jesus, this is great. Let me build, let's build a tabernacle for you and for Moses and Elijah. And God said, 
this is my beloved son, listen to him, listen to him. And he told, he told Martha, 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 you're worried and distracted about many things, but only one thing is needed. In Psalm 27, that says, um, one thing I ask for, and this will I seek, that I may behold you in, in your glory and, and, and something to that extent. And so it's this idea that everything I think God has to give to us has been wrapped up in the person of God's son. God says, do you want forgiveness of sins? It's in a person. Do you want peace? Peace is not some, some thing that I'm going to dispense to you. Peace is a person. Our, our peace is an intimate relationship with the one who himself is our peace. Mm-hmm. And life is not something separate from, from a person, from Christ. God doesn't give us life to become connected to the person, but it's our connection to that person that becomes our very life. And so I just think this is something that Calvinism just misses in that it says in regeneration precedes faith that again, R.C. Sproul saying this is the essence of Reformed theology. What it ultimately says, and, and there's some objections, some ways they try to get around this, I think, but what it ultimately says is that the fir- what God does first, and really you have God giving two, what I would argue, the two most important elements of salvation, the two most fundamental parts of our salvation, God gives them to the elect person outside of union with Christ or before they're united to Christ. First, the elect person is enters into this world being the elect of God. They're chosen to be holy and blameless, chosen for salvation. They are Jesus's sheep. They belong to God as his special people. So they get that privilege. Second, they get this thing called life. And now these two things ultimately lead to that being united with Christ. And I just want to say, I know some Calvinists might, might word it differently. They might try to say, oh, no, well, we don't, I don't believe that personally. But I think that's the, this is what I'd argue is the ultimate implications of at least the version of Calvinism that I get from MacArthur, from Piper, uh, Lawson, kind of the popular uh, Calvinists that, that, that we think of today. And so... So I think it's just this idea that is missed that 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 wrongly thinks that these blessings are are things that can be had outside of or before that connection to Christ. As as Jesus said that I am the vine, you are the branches apart from me, apart from me. Again, this word of of that conveys this idea of a closeness that is required and intimacy uh, apart from me, separated from me, disconnected from me, out of relationship with me, he says, you mm-hmm. can do nothing. But, um, and I, I would add to that, and I think it would be right to add to that, that you can do nothing and you can have nothing. Uh, separate from me, outside of this connected relationship with me, you have nothing. Nothing in the sense of, you know, again, going back to spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Um, and so it's in that connectedness being grafted into the vine, as Romans 11 talks about how the Gentiles who are grafted into the vine are now partaking in the life-giving nourishment of that vine. So the life-giving nourishment is contained within the vine that is Christ. And unless we are first connected to him, we cannot share, we cannot participate in, we cannot experience any of the things that Christ is for us, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, all the other blessings listed in Ephesians 1. And I would include in that again, election being having this privilege, the special privilege of being God's chosen people, chosen to be holy and blameless. And I would add, uh, uh, of course, as well, regeneration life. Um, all these things, they you can't get these separate or outside of that that relationship with Christ, and yeah. I I guess I have yet to see how um, how Calvinism and the way it articulates what God's election of people looks like and what God's regeneration of people prior to their faith looks like how how both of those ideas don't convey this this idea that that we somehow get the blessings of Christ outside of a connected intimate, organic connection to Christ. You know, that's good, Jordan. And I, I agree a hundred percent with you on the topic of regeneration, man, this guy, 
in the chat. Like, I really like what he says. He's Soteriology 101 with Dr. Lay. Oh, wait, wait, that's that's Layton. He says <laughs> that Second Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We aren't born in Christ, nor are we made a new creation, regenerated, which caused us to believe in Christ. And whenever, and Layton, I'll let you, I'll let you comment on that, obviously, here in just a second. Um, but whenever I thought about that, I can honestly say that whenever I was, you know, Calvinist, I never connected that verse to what Leighton just said in the way Leighton described it. If we are made a new creation in Christ, and that seems to happen with what you just said, Jordan, in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, not outside of Christ, not before all this, not, not in the mind of God, you know, in eternity past, but in Christ now, then this is whenever the new life, and I think in everything that you're talking about, the benefits, I call them benefits of salvation, right? The benefits that come with that are distributed to the person who is in Christ, right? And more importantly, too, maybe, is that the one who remains in Christ, right? And so with that being said, I agree with you 100%. I think that's a good argument. And uh, Leighton, I'll let you comment on that as well if uh, if you'd like to know. Yeah, and in addition to the Second Corinthians passage, you know, the Ephesians one: uh, When are you included in Christ? When do you receive the Spirit? When you heard the message of truth and you believed, you were marked in Him. So, when are you in Him? When you believe. Uh, right. So you're not you're not born already in Him. Uh, you're not made uh, a new creation prior to coming to faith in Him. Uh, Jesus said, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He didn't say, I've refused to bring you to life, regenerate you. I've refused to give you life so that you would come to me. Uh, John 20, 31 says, these things have been written so that you may believe and that by believing you may have life. Mm -hmm. So how do you get life? By believing. You're not universe, You're not just unilaterally made alive so that you'll you'll believe. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that's, that's just the cart before the horse um, on the Calvinistic yeah. system is that basically you've got to be given life uh, made a new creation, uh, given a new heart before you can believe in the life giver and the one who's supposed to clean up your heart. Jesus right. is the one who cleans up hearts. You don't have to get a new heart in order to get the heart. It's like it's like with my wife when she wants to clean up the house before the you know I, I buy her something you know a gift to get a you know, this maid service to come and clean up our whole house and she starts cleaning up the house before the maid gets there and I'm like what are you doing? That that's what the maid's for. You're you're supposed to let the the clean service do that. And that's what some people think. They think we've got to we've got to have a clean heart in order to invite Jesus in. No, only Jesus can clean our heart. And what Calvinism ultimately has the the order backwards that that somehow through this supernatural work of regeneration, God cleans up our heart so that we can come to Jesus. Right. And it just it's just a backwards theology. It it puts the cart before the horse as far as what I can see in Scripture. It's always believe in the life giver in order to get life. Eat of my flesh so as to live. Drink of my blood so as to live. Come to me so as to live. It's always uh, Jesus who is the one who brings life. Tyler, could you real, just real quick uh, pull yeah. that that verse I posted in the the chat? Because this is one that every every single time I've ever mentioned this argument i've never included this verse in any video i've made but i think it's just it's a very simple one tucked at the back of romans that you you just pass by and never think a thing of but i think it actually adds uh a, quite a significant um, i was going to um, mention that too jordan in, actually just, okay good good yeah, yeah I mean, so it's, it's so clear i'll let you lead on that yeah well it, it's Paul, just very simple statement. Greet Andronicus Junior, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. And so, really, what this what this does is it simply affirms this idea that that Leighton just suggested that being in Christ, although there there is something you know which I think would be a different discussion that might be better had in the context of a back and forth with a Calvinist, but there's something to the eternal perspective that God does have, but there's, I don't think there's any way around it that, that for us, we, we, we had a point in time where we were not in Christ 
And in as much as we were not in Christ, I think everything that I just laid out would be true, that we didn't have any of these spiritual blessings. Paul says that these two Jews were in Christ before he was, suggesting that, again, there is a point in time where you go from not being in Christ to now you are in Christ, which would also uh, include that before you were in Christ, you know, Paul, when he was not in Christ, well, all these things listed in Ephesians 1, the, these things that are true of those who are the faithful in Christ Jesus, well, those things weren't true of Paul in as much as he was not yet in Christ in that context in which those things are true. And so, so I think this is important to bring up because one of the primary responses that this sort of argument will get is that there will be what I think is, is, is an esoteric appeal to like the mystery of, of God being outside of time. And so God somehow, uh, which I think when you really boil it, boil it down, it, it doesn't really answer the problem. It just sort of pushes it off into some mystery that really now, you know, you could just as, I, I think the argument basically that the Calvinist gives in response to, to this argument could be used right back against them. So when they say, oh, well, you're man-centered, because you believe that you chose God before he chose you, you could kind of just push it out to mystery and say, oh, well, no, this is, it's a logical order, not a temporal order that I'm arguing for here. You know, that's something you'll hear him bring up too as a response to this. And, yeah. and it, so, so really, I'm not saying we believe before, it, temporally, before God b chooses us. It, it, that's just the logical order, not the temporal order. And so, you know, it, it just sort of kind of shifts the goalpost over, I think, so that you don't really have to deal with the objections being raised. Because if you can just appeal yeah. to the mystery of God's being out of time, then, well, it's sort of the end of discussion because neither neither party is going to be able to nail down anything specific about what that means or what that looks like. And so we might as well just chalk all this up to mystery and stop talking about it. Um, right. But so, so yeah, it's interesting, Lucas, that, that, uh, that, that came to your mind though. Yeah. Because one, this is Paul. So it's not like, you know, we're comparing Paul's letter with John's letter or Peter's letter. Th this is Paul. So this means this is how Paul uses that phrase in Christ. So hermeneutics would would back this up. So it's not like you know we're trying to interpret one context with another. You know, you know, with another, we're you know we're looking at the same author. And so when Paul says they were in Christ before me, what you know what he is saying is they they were Christians before me. So when you go to Ephesians one, Paul's saying in him, well, who is that? That's Christians. So Paul's Paul's just saying God chose Christians and He predestined their de their destiny pre. He did it beforehand, destiny, where you're going. So God does it beforehand. So if we can get you know this misconception too, where we see predestination, we think determinism, get that out of your mind. Don't don't assume determinism equals predestination, because this is where you know the problem comes in where people always usually go to like Ephesians one. Well, I mean, predestination, you know, predestination's in the Bible. Well, we believe in that too, but we just don't assume it means determinism. And then mm -hmm. we have you know have phrases right. like in him. You go to Ephesians uh, one thirteen. You know, uh, in Him, you know, you were you were sealed after you believed. They were in Christ before me. All the evidence is lining up, and not for unconditional election, but for conditional election. And whether you know it's corporate or individual or through foreknowledge, you know, the fact is, it's definitely not unconditional. Yes. Yeah. It's conditional. I. You know, it, there's almost like a a bit of a. Uh, a negative slant that I think is assumed on on anybody who would say that it's a conditional election because what's going to immediately be be inserted there is man centered, right. works based salvation sort of idea. But but it's conditioned on again not the emphasis here isn't it's conditioned on um, my emphasis. I don't even think necessarily is it's conditioned on you know what I do. My argument is it's conditioned on connection to Christ. Um, that's what I think is being emphasized in Ephesians. And now I think you can go on and, and you can find in other places that that does involve being conditioned on a response of faith. But the emphasis is that, and my emphasis is not that I want to defend my free will ability to get myself into Christ. I'm just simply defending that I don't think any blessing, we, we can't have any blessing outside of that union with Christ. My emphasis is the union with Christ, not even necessarily trying to defend what it is that gets us into that union or not. You know, right. the Calvinists could still hear, I think if they're hearing what I'm saying, hear this argument and st and and still go from there and say, okay, well, well now let's talk about though, how do we 
how do we get in Christ? And we could talk about that. But I think what my point is just to say, I think the Calvinists should at least get on the same grounds to say, you're right. That would not make sense that regeneration would come before that union. The union has to come first because Jesus and that that relationship with him has to be the basis for life. That has to be the context in which life is experienced. I think we should at least be able to, to agree on that. I don't know how you could not after reading through the new Testament, um, obviously, especially Paul. Um, so, well, and to that point, Jordan is that union with Christ. And I would say, I would argue, maybe you disagree with me. I don't know, but implies participation with Christ. Right. Because why are we united to Christ anyway? Yeah. It's to participate yes. with him in sanctification, in theosis, whatever you want to describe that as it is to become more like him in holiness and righteousness. And I think that's what you mean. And correct me if I'm wrong. But whenever you say, I don't know how someone can read the New Testament and not get that is because that's what the New Testament alludes to as our point that we're traveling toward is we are united to Christ to become more holy. And so that, however you want to define that, you know, like I said, whether it's progressive, whether it's instantaneous, whatever, I don't think it's instantaneous, don't get me wrong, but I think it's a progressive sanctification or theosis as the Orthodox Church argues. The point is we're going somewhere. We're not stopping in Christ and just that's it. No, the reason that we are united to Christ is to become more like him. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're, you're absolutely right that the word union, I mean, I think what it, that should turn our minds to is again, this concept of marriage and what is a marriage? Well, it's, right. it's two, it's two willing parties coming into this trusting uh, uh, agreement together. You know, two are being made one, like the Proverbs talks about how can two walk together unless they be in agreement. And so, yeah, I think the, the word what's entailed in that was implied in that is that there is a participation from from both sides um but it's not it's not us like Leighton says we're not going out into the woodshed and and building our get into christ mobile um we're not <laughs> placing ourselves in christ even we're not doing something and lifting ourselves up out of ourselves out of adam and putting ourselves in christ it's it's none of that god is doing that but he's chosen to do that for those who trust him yeah. for those who say hey you, you know what I can't do this myself. I cannot get rid of my past sins or my present reality of sin, but I, I'm just looking to you in humility to help me. And, and I trust you and God places those yeah. who do that. He places them in unit with his son. Um, yeah. But yeah. I, I, yeah, I think you're right that it does. It does imply uh, participation on, on both parts. I think the, the phrase in him, I think when Paul referenced in him, it, implied in that is is this idea that that yes it, our our faith is a necessary component of this to work because it's a, it's a relationship to be in him is to be in a intimate relationship and that involves agreement from two parties yeah that's good Leighton, i saw you on mute yeah yeah i was just going to say I, I think where the calvinist makes this error, at least when I was a Calvinist, where I think I was making my error, looking back on it now is verse four of Ephesians one, where it says he, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That phrase right there is really highlighted. And you could, you could take out the word in him and it would mean the exact same thing for a Calvinist. You could just say he chose us before the foundation of the world because it's very individualistic and it's about us, the individual being chosen and I'd, I'd actually read into those words. We're, we're chosen to be put into him or we're chosen to be in him before the foundation of the world. So the way my mind would work as a Calvinist was, oh, okay, so God chose Leighton to be in Christ. And so I'm not in Christ from birth. I, I do have to be, become a believer in Christ, but I certainly will because God has destined that for me before the foundation of the world. And I understand that's how it could be read if that's kind of the lenses you have on and where how you're coming at it. Um, there's a reason there's so many Calvinists out there and it's it's because of verses like that where it, it sounds like he's saying he has chosen for us to be in him. He has chosen for certain individuals to be put into Christ before the foundation of the world. 
But I think when you back up and you look, he's talking to the faithful in Christ. So the first time he mentions in Christ is actually verse one and two. So he's talking about those who have faith in Christ. And over and over, if you read through Paul's teachings, he's always talking about God from the beginning. If you read Ephesians 3, from the beginning, this has been his plan because he's the apostle to the Gentiles. He's trying to convince Jewish people, for the most part, that the Gentiles have been a part of God's plan from the beginning, that it's always been his plan to graft them in. So the the point he's communicating from our side is that, no, from the beginning, from this has been God's plan from the very beginning, that whether you're a male or female, you're slave or free, you're Jew, you're Gentile, whatever you are, from the beginning, if you're in Christ through faith, one of the faithful in Christ, you have been chosen to be made holy and blameless. Well, what's that? That's to be like Jesus. That's sanctification. Right. And that's the other time, only other time he uses the word predestination is in Romans 8. And what's that? You have been predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Same exact thing. You've been predestined. You, the believer, have mm-hmm. been predestined to be like Jesus. God has decided beforehand, this is what will happen for those who are in Christ through faith. And that's been his plan from the beginning. So it's just a shift of of the way you view this passage. And and, and for any Calvinists that may be watching this, I, I hear where you're coming from. I understand why you're reading it as to say God has chosen you to be in him through some kind of effectual work and those kinds of things. But I'm just asking you step away from that for a second, take off the lenses and just look at it from our perspective and at least understand it from our perspective to understand that how one comes to be in Christ, according to verse 13, is by hearing the gospel and believing, and mm-hmm. then you're marked in him. So that's your responsibility. And God is destined beforehand that if you're in Christ, here's what's going to happen. And the analogy I've used before, and many who listen to the show know this, but I, I get a lot of feedback from this analogy that really help people to like the light comes on for them. And so I, I try to use it whenever, wherever I go, because I think it helps people to see it from our vantage point. And if a, if a storm was coming here to Dallas, um, and a messenger was sent from God saying, hey, a huge storm like no other is coming through Dallas, and everybody is going to perish in this storm. So I'm going to put a fortress in the middle of the city. Anybody who gets into this fortress will live. Anybody who stays outside the fortress will surely die. Um, and and then, of course, the, the storm comes. Everybody who believes the messenger and gets into the, the fortress lives, and everybody outside the fortress dies. And so you could rightly say it was predestined that those people in the fortress would live, and it was predestined, determined beforehand, that everybody outside the fortress would die. But notice I haven't said anything about God destining who would and would not get into the fortress. That is your responsibility. Well, Christ is our fortress. And so the warning is, if you get into Christ through faith, here are the spiritual blessings that he has destined beforehand. He will save you. He will conform you. He will bring you to where he wants you to be in your in your Christian walk through circumstances in life and living, participating with you in the spirit as you were talking about. But it's your responsibility to put your faith in him, to trust in him. Um, and and I, I think that's so valuable to understand. We do hold to a robust teaching of the doctrine of predestination. We believe the doctrine of predestination. That's where my hope is. My hope is in the fact that that I know my adoption is coming because God is predestined for my adoption, according to, to Romans 8, 23, that God has predestined for me to be adopted. And what does that mean? The redemption of my bodies. We eagerly await for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So how do I know I'm going to be adopted, brought up to, to, to the mansion he has prepared for me? I know that because he has destined beforehand that blessing for those who put their faith in Christ. So your responsibility is to put your faith in Christ, get into his fortress, and then you will live. If you remain outside the fortress, then you will surely die. But that's your fault, not because God didn't really love you, not because you were created uh, from the womb to be destined for destruction, not because he's demonstrating his wrath through you, created you to, to be an object of his wrath to show how powerful he is. All of those things are just baggage that's been added onto the text years after the first century, by the way, didn't even introduced into the church until Augustine in the fifth century, these concepts. And when you begin to just tear that stuff off, that baggage that's been put on to the, the scripture, it is so much more simple. It is so clear. It is so beautiful. And it maintains, yes, God's sovereignty and his goodness and his grace and your responsibility in the whole process. Well, doesn't it show the love that God has for everyone by giving them the same fortress to come into? I like what Absolutely. Josh Yeah, I like what Josh says here. Notice the people 
did not build the fortress themselves by entering it. And agreed, God provides the fortress for the world. And what you're saying, Dr. Flowers, is you choose to come in that fortress or you choose to stay outside. Death and destruction are certain, right? But what is not and what is your responsibility is whether or not you personally, as an individual, get on, get in the fortress, get on the boat, get into Christ. Everybody's got it. Those who are on there, I like A.W. Tozer, everyone who gets on the ship, they're all going to London from New York. But if you don't get on the ship, that's on you. If you do get on the ship, then praise God for it. Well, the problem is, too, is unfortunately, you know, these arguments are dealing with the text, but they don't do much for the Calvinists because, as I, you know, so I try to mention in the beginning, there's these layers of presuppositions where it's like, you know, Jordan mentioned it, too, where it's like they, they couldn't even accept this possibility that God would say, OK, here's salvation. Let me put a condition on it. I'll save those who believe and damn those who don't. They, they assume, no, 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 that can't be that way. God has to say this person will believe and that person won't believe. And that's why I try to mention that if we can just start with. Okay, you know, let's try to deal with these presuppositions. Well, I, you know, I'll grant you moderate Calvinism. Like again, like like moderate Calvinism. Okay, let's let's grant this. Let's try to test this with the scriptures. But if you just have those presuppositions, which is, you know, as Dr. Flower says, which is a great point in Ephesians 1 4, does that phrase in him mean much for the Calvinists? Well, if you take that away, they would still interpret that text the exact same way, regardless of that preposition in him. Why? Because these are what we, you know we call presuppositions, where they're assuming. No, God has to be this way. Sovereignty means determinism. And if they can believe and if they accept this condition, that's all work. Salvation is still in God's glory. So it's just, you know, stack, stack, stack with these presuppositions where these things are actually dealing with the argument and dealing with the text, but they, they won't even go there because they've right. been told, don't touch us with a 10 foot pole. If you do, I'll put you in this camp and you're a Pelagianist. Uh, you know, you're a heretic, you know, you know, whatever kind of rhetoric, you know, they want to throw, which they have thrown on all, but some of them do. A lot right. of them have, unfortunately. Um, real quick, uh, I want to hit this comment real quick because it's specifically to you, Jordan. But then Dale has a couple questions. I know Dale's got to leave it at three, and, and Dale jumped on to help me out with the comments. So, Dale, I appreciate that, brother. Um, and he's also yes. acting co-host, too. So, uh, with that being said, uh, I'm a, I want to let him answer a question. But first, I want to touch on this. So, Reformly says, I've already handled Jordan's little argument here. Calvinists don't hold what he's saying. Common grace is also from Christ. The notion that man cannot be blessed by Christ outside of him is wrong. Now, here's my thing, Jordan. I don't think you said that, right? Is that that's not your argument that man cannot be blessed by Christ outside of him? Is it? No, I no. So. I, and I, I try to I try to nuance that, and when I was uh, uh, right. sharing the argument, and that obviously there is, you know, I believe Psalm, I can't remember the specific Psalm that talks about how God is gracious to all he has made. He's good to all and everything he's made, he, he is merciful and compassionate toward, and, and he sends rain on both the just and the unjust. Um, and so this argument is, is not one that is saying that there is absolutely no kindness, love, grace, goodness that God shows to any person unless they're first in Christ. That's not the argument. The argument is, you know, if we want to just limit it to Ephesians 1, I would say the specific spiritual blessings that are laid out in a places like Ephesians 1, I would even say like Colossians, where it also, uh, Colossians 2 talks about, it kind of lists different um, experiences or blessings or privileges that those in Christ um, experience. Um, I would say it's those specific blessings of Christ that are not, I think, experienced um, outside of him. Um, and so I don't, I don't know if that answers the question um, that this person's asking, but, but if, if that's the, the, the misunderstanding that's happening here that you think I'm saying that there's absolutely no blessing from God or Christ until you're in him first, that's not, that's not the argument well, here. And where I would push back, Jordan, on some of that is whenever Calvinists talk about this common grace, the rain and sunshine, these, these kinds of things, um, you know, even even 1 Corinthians 13 talks about, I can be so benevolent to give all that I own to the poor, but if I have not love, it means nothing. In other words, benevolence is not love. Um, and so what we're saying is God loves all that he has created because God is love. And so you can choose whether or not you're going to have children. 
But uh, if you choose to have a child, then obviously anyone and everyone is going to expect you to love that which you choose to create. And we, that's what we're saying with God. It's not a, it's not a lessening of God's power or ability uh, or his might to say that he, he must love that which he creates. It's, it's, it's like me saying, I can't strangle my daughter. Well, that, that's actually, a, uh, that's actually a, a, a positive thing that I can't strangle my yeah. daughter. My character wouldn't allow that. I have to show love to her because, uh, because that's my character. And so much more so, God's character is one of love. And therefore, saying that he just gives them rain and sunshine, and that's considered love or grace or a blessing of some sort, especially if he's reprobated them in the way that the Calvinist teaches, it just seems like such a superfluous meaning of what true grace and what true love looks like from the scripture. Yeah. And that's where I yeah. really push back on my Calvinist friends on that point is just to say, I, I think the A.W. Pink is more consistent, at least, in his Calvinism because he comes right out and says God hates the reprobate, whereas John MacArthur is trying to say, no, no, in order for Jesus to fulfill the, the commandments, he has to love his enemies. So we have to say that he, he genuinely loves them, but then he has to deal with the quandary of his Calvinism and how he can call that love when it looks a lot like hate. It's like giving yeah, a dog think- a steak when you know and you're putting him down tomorrow. Yes. Yes. No, exactly. And I, I use the the Good analogy that, that that maybe is a bit salty, but I, th- I think it's an accurate one that that the common grace that I think the God in Calvinism shows to the non-elect, you know, giving rain and sunshine to a person that you have created for the ultimate purpose of eternally destroying in hell to give them a few years of rain and sunshine in their life, that ultimately that rain and sunshine is actually going to be utilized by God to simply further and strengthen their condemnation and their torment in hell because he's, he's put that in their life to, you know, to uh, ultimately so that they will reject that and therefore be blameworthy uh, according to to their version of what, what blameworthy means, and so so I think you know an uh, appropriate, although again a bit salty of a um, comparison would be like like you just said, Lucas, but like a a, a, a Nazi who might have given you know handed a, a a bottle of of water to to a Jew as he's ushering them toward the gas chambers is that loving? Is that is that kindness being shown? Um, and I just don't think it is. It's like God has put the non-elect reprobate on a conveyor belt toward eternal damnation unchangeably. And every once in a while, you know, he hands them like a drink of water and says, look at how, how kind I am, how, how, how good I have been to you in your, in your life. Um, and I just, I, I totally agree, Lane. I don't, I cannot fathom how that could be comprehended as loving uh, unless we just toss out the whole handbook on on what you know loving means um and, and kind of reinterpret well, and it or just, we don't have to we don't have to guess what love is the bible yes. defines what love looks like it's kind it's not self-seeking it's sacrificial it, you know all the things that 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 paul describes as what love is that's our god and and if your doctrine doesn't describe god as being those characteristics, then you've got a bad doctrine. Your doc, there's something wrong with your doctrine, and so change your doctrine. Don't don't try to change God or His character. This is one of the reasons I get so frustrated when people say, "Well, you're man-centered. You're not centered." The thing I'm defending is the blameworthiness of the sinner, because people who reject a God who loves and provides for them is much more blameworthy than somebody who's just born like that. So the blameworthiness of the sinner is one of the number one reasons I teach what I teach. And the second one is the character of the goodness of God's love and provision for everybody. It's a character that, that expressed his longing desire for the salvation of people because he really wants it and he's provided it for everybody. And so it, it is all about being centered on the person of Jesus Christ and the character that he displays on the cross of Calvary. And the, the greatest event in all of human history is the cross. And Christ is supposed to be the the perfect example of who God and his character is. And what does he display on the cross? His sacrificial love for his enemies, not his control over his enemies, not his meticulous deterministic control over everything they do. He, He demonstrates his love for his enemies. And therefore our theology should be centered upon the cross and centered upon Christ who says, stop and help your enemies. Uh, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I say, show mercy, show grace, go the extra mile. Jesus clarifies the old covenant for us, teaches us what 
true divinity looks like by emptying himself, coming in a manger, dying on a cross. He shows us what true godness looks like. And so, yeah, my, my doctrine is man-centered, man centered on the man Jesus Christ. It's a Christocentric theology and soteriology because he's sacrificing of himself. He's not controlling his enemies to bring himself as much glory as possible, stepping on his enemies, reprobating his enemies to make himself look better through the demonstration of his power over them and his wrath over them, destroying them for what he determined them to do. That's just a, a horrible picture of who God is in his character. And it's a it's a false way of looking at how God works with humanity and what he did in demonstrating his love for all of humanity on the cross of Calvary. Thank I, I appreciate that, Layton, because Jesus himself in John 15, 13 says that no one has any greater love than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then to complement that, Paul tells us that while in Romans, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So to say that, that to me, that sounds like that saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, on this, but that the greatest love there is, is to lay down your life. Like the greatest love is to lay down your life. And then Paul compliments that by saying, right, Christ did that for sinners. Like, what, how can we say that, you know, and, and I used to say this too, I think I did it on the CSG episode that, that we did with you, Dr. Flowers, that, you know, this idea of different kind of love and, and the, t the two of everything that, you know, Calvinism entails, has to entail at that point, two different wills, two different types of love, two different this, that, and the other, right? Jesus is, seems to be refuting that by saying, no, I don't have any greater love. No one does than to lay down his life. And yet Paul tells us he did that for sinners. I mean, I, that just speaks volumes to me. Dale, I know you had a couple questions before you had to leave. Oh, yeah. so I want to get that. Uh, yeah, go, cool. go ahead, Jordan, and then Jordan, you can go. Yeah, yeah, this has been great. I, I agree with the majority of, of what these experts have been saying. I think they've done a great job at establishing the, the case against Calvinism. Um, I just wanted to raise a couple uh, points that uh, Calvinists will bring up. My, my old Calvinist pastor at my Baptist church would always bring these arguments up. Um, so in the first place, they would say, well, there, there's this issue of God's sovereignty. We, we've been kind of talking about that and stuff like that. And they'll say, look, free will, if, if we do have this libertarian free will and we're making this choice, this takes away from God's sovereignty. But at the same time, they also acknowledge, well, Adam and Eve, they they weren't contaminated originally. They had free will. They were free to make this choice. So is uh, my question on that front is, isn't this an inconsistency? Like it, obviously it doesn't take away inherently from their, from God's sovereignty because Adam and Eve had it and it wasn't an issue. And yeah. the, second, uh, the, the second thing I want to hear you guys address in the next, uh, over the next bit. Um, so this, the analogy of, you know, Lazarus. So we're, we're dead to the sins and it's, taken literally like we are literally dead we can't do anything of ourselves and stuff like that um however uh, even my calvinist pastor they they will admit well actually we're not we aren't totally dead because we can do certain things um and you know there are unbelievers who don't have the holy spirit presumably they're not saved and that sort of thing but they're still seeking god so obviously their spirits in practice aren't totally dead and that makes it disanalogous to you know, their use of Lazarus or something like that, or the dead bones. Uh, so yeah, I just wanted to hear the panel uh, kind of address those issues. Start yeah, I was just, I was going to say that's a point that I make quite regularly, especially with the more moderate type of Calvinist. Um, I, I've learned that, that some of the Calvinists that are a little higher in their Calvinism or they debate a lot have kind of moved away from this, this perspective because they see it doesn't hold water. Um, and that's the perspective that Adam and Eve had libertarian freedom of the will and that, that they could have chosen to eat or not eat of the for, forbidden fruit. Um, because if you get a Calvinist to admit that, which is what their confessions say, it actually even uses the liberty of the will in their confessions. Right. Um, and if you can get them to actually adhere to their own confession and say, yes, Adam and Eve had the liberty of the will, they could have willingly chosen to refrain from eating the fruit or they could have eaten it. Either one was possible. That's a libertarian form of freedom. Um, if you can get them to go there, then you can just say, okay, was God sovereign in the garden? 
and you've 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 helped them at least see from that point forward sovereignty and free will are perfectly uh, compatible with each other uh, even on a a calvinistic worldview because you believe that prior to the fall they were able to make a free choice and god was still sovereign and he didn't lose his sovereignty uh just because you have the freedom of the will that your freedom has nothing to do with god's sovereignty god can sovereignly choose to give you freedom and it doesn't affect his sovereignty at all um, and so once you get them to that point, then they can begin to at least open up to consider, well, maybe we haven't lost that. Maybe we still have the freedom of the will, whether it's granted by some kind of a, a prevenient grace or whether it's through a creative kind of a grace like I, I was talking about earlier. It, it doesn't really matter. You can, you can still have a sovereign God while people have this liberty of the will to accept or reject his gospel without it, it compromising any, anything to do with God's sovereignty. Now, what guys like James White and other high Calvinists who debate this, they've come to see that that's an argument that doesn't work for them because they have to have the S of their stulip. And the S of their stulip has to be, uh, of course, not just sovereignty, but determinism. And therefore, God has to ultimately be the one who determines Adam's choice to fall, which you read Calvin, and he actually comes right out and admits that Calvin's fall was a part of the sovereign decree as well, that everything, even including the fall itself, was in accordance with what God decreed in eternity past to happen. And, and there, therefore, you have this quandary now of the guilt of man, the blameworthiness of the sinner, because the fall and all of its consequences were ultimately outside of the control of the, the human, the agent being held accountable. And this is why you get Calvin saying things like how God is not uh, implicated as the author and the approver of transgression. I've daily so meditated on this question. I confess ignorance. I don't know how it is. In other words, what's the appealing mystery to? I don't know how God's good. I don't know how he's not guilty, but I don't believe he's guilty. I believe he's still good, but somehow he's the one who's ultimately responsible for my responses. And yet I'm still held accountable for it. And he's not guilty. I don't know. That's the mystery of Calvinism. It's that, it's that atenomy. It's that paradox that, that MacArthur talks about. God determines what you're going to choose to do, but somehow you're still mysteriously guilty for what you do. And you just got to accept it. And, right. and that's where we're pushing back. We don't think that the Bible teaches sovereignty as equal with determinism. And I think we're in good company on that one too, Dr. Flowers, because this is what the church fathers taught. You know, we'll, I'll go over the quotes here after a while, but that the blameworthiness of the person that's committing sin and the, the other aspect of that, right? the worthiness of someone who does not participate in sin, but to actually, you know, be given these things like blessings, for example, for those who are participating in Christ. This is what the church fathers argued. And so I just wanted to comment and say, I think we're in good company on this one. We see this from St. Irenaeus of Lyons. We see this from St. John of Damascus. We see this from St. Ignatius even. Um, so I think we're in good company and the list goes on. And so anyway, with that being said, who's ever, uh, Lucas, I was going to say, say too is that sovereignty doesn't mean the highest expression of so, of of said attribute. So so a lot of times Calvinists assume That's that sovereignty is what God does. When sovereignty, when we're talking about God is sovereign, <laughs> talking about is right. So we're talking about ontology, who God is. So it doesn't mean that God has to do the highest expression of that sovereignty to be sovereign, because otherwise, what happened before He created the you know the earth? You know, was God sovereign then? Yes. So sovereignty, and this is important to, you know, you know, kind of press a little bit. Again, sovereignty does not mean the highest expression of that attribute. God is sovereign regardless of what he does. So if he wants to allow Adam and Eve to choose to sin or not to sin, which he did, a lot of Calvinists will agree, then, that, then that's granting and also taking away a major presupposition where God sovereignty is equated with determinism. So if we can, we can expose that, again, expose that presupposition, now we can go to the scriptures and, and let's you know, really try to, to figure out, does the Bible teach what you call Calvinism, even if you're a moderate Calvinist? Right. That's good. Dale, is there anything awesome. else? Uh, no, I, I just want to say thank you guys so much for uh, having me on and, and for uh, answering that those questions and stuff like that. I'm, I'm sorry that I have to go. I'm actually going to be on in a couple minutes with Phil Bear, who's also um, an expert on refuting Calvinism and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, I, I've started the questions for you. So you you should have some good questions at the end. 
including from my good buddy, the atheist uh, Pine Creek Dougie. Uh, hey, Doug, good to see you again. I hope you're not stressing over the shroud still. But uh, anyways, uh, yeah, thank you guys for having a great show. And uh, I look forward to, to watching the rest of this uh, later on. Dale, I love you, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. No, thank you for thank you for coming in, helping me with the chats, and then and putting uh, your opinions and questions out here. I think it made the show even that much better. So thank you. Awesome, awesome. Take care, guys. So, all right. So uh, I I had a few thoughts about Dale's questions. I I know he's got to drop off, so I don't know if he'll will hear the response. But I just I, I'm assuming that at least some of the questions he was raising there were in response to some of the arguments that I'd previously made. And so I think I would just, what I would want to say in response to those initial, you know, that initial point that he brought up of how he thinks like Calvinists might commonly respond or, or objections they might raise. Um, he mentioned that Calvinists would kind of emphasize how, well, if, if we're choosing in some way to believe in order to be placed in Christ, then this would somehow take away from God's glory and things like that. And I think what what I would just do, what I would want to do as a response to that, if I were sitting in a conversation with a Calvinist, would be um, first to point to what Lucas said earlier, is I think that's just, there are many presuppositions showing up there. Um, yeah. And I would I would just say, look, let's just let's just set aside for a moment, you know, after I've I've laid out this argument, let's set aside for a moment the the debate about how one gets into Christ. Let's set that aside. Is it, is it my faith? Is it God who causes me to have faith? Let's set that aside. We can talk about that in a minute. Can we agree, though, that the blessings of salvation, the blessings laid out in Ephesians 1, Colossians 2, and so on, that these are exclusively received in the context of union with Christ? That Let's get there first. Because if you can't agree on that, if you're going to disagree with that and say, well, no, I think actually you can receive the spiritual blessing of of life, regeneration, life, and and being chosen to be holy and blameless, and some of these other blessings that are described in the New Testament. I think you can receive those outside of Christ. If if that's the response of the Calvinists, well, at that, at that point, I would say, well, I don't think we need to talk about how one gets into Christ yet, then. Let's Let's talk about this because I think that's a problem. I think that's perhaps where much of your issues are stemming from, um, because I think that presents a, a significant misunderstanding of what union with Christ is and what it entails. Um, and the second point he brought up, Lazarus uh, and and the dead deadness analogy. I think Leighton has already you know made some good points about deadness being perhaps better thought of as separation um from from god uh rather than a you know the way the calvinists might frame that and i would also point to places like romans 6 um where paul compares and contrasts like our our past slavery to sin he'll 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 say basically you know you were once slaves to sin but now you are slaves to god and in in the same way you were then free from righteousness now you are free from sin He'll say, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. And so I think that if, you know, my, the way I, I handle that passage, and I don't, I don't want to take this back into like a total inability <laughs> uh, discussion. Uh, this would just be what I would, I would say in the context of Dale's, um, you know, objections would just be that, you know, if, if Lazarus being dead in the tomb, totally unable to, to respond in any way to God until God, you know, says his name and causes him to come out of that grave. If that's what deadness means, then I think I, I, I don't see why that's not our same condition in relationship to sin now that we're now dead to sin. And so we are totally unable to sin. We cannot we have a, we can't see, or hear, or even understand sin, let alone embrace it and live in it. Um, and we're slaves to God. So how can us, you know, and, and Calvinists love that, that, um, you know, that analogy, that idiom of slavery to sin. And they'll talk about, you know, you use that as, as a, a total inability uh, sort of support. So I just say, if, if, right. if we're now slaves to God and slaves to righteousness, then how is that, you know, is the slavery that God has brought us into to righteousness somehow weaker or less effective than the slavery we were under uh, 
as a result of the fall is the power that sin has over us somehow now it's more effective and more more um you know it accomplishes more of what it's trying to do sin does than what righteousness uh it, it, the effectiveness of righteousness now that we have been right. made new creations in Christ and so so i guess that that's just a, 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 maybe some points i would go go toward if if we were to if somebody's to object to what I said with like the Lazarus analogy. And I would just also point them to, to my Lazarus analogy video I made a, a few months ago where I, I just, I, I, th- I think it's using the last, the Lazarus story as a parallel of, um, of total inability. I just think is, is quite inappropriate. Um, I just, I don't think contextually, I think there's, there's no reason to, to think that that was in any way what is intended to communicate. I think that's a good point, Jordan. If slavery entails inability, then it goes both ways. 